We, as a, as a family, we've, we've hit a, a new stage together. Uh, it's a stage that I've been, I've been looking forward to, truthfully, uh, for years. Some might even say that our children's lives could be uh, divided into these two moments, before this time and after this time. Uh, we've entered the world of Star Wars. <laughs> ah, somebody else likes Star Wars. I knew it. I knew it. Uh, you know, I, I know that I'm a nerd, okay? I'll, I'll be the first to admit it. Some of you probably aren't at all surprised at the, the nerdiness. You knew that about me. But I love, I love it. And so recently we, we've begun watching the, the original three films uh, as a family with our kids. And we had, we had no idea the obsession that this would cause. I mean, maybe some of you have experienced this with, with your children. I don't know. Uh, but it seems like every time they play now, it's, they're playing something Star Wars. I mean, David is almost always Luke Skywalker. Uh, Eden is almost always Princess Leia. Uh, and they usually ask me to be either Darth Vader or Jabba the Hutt. Uh, I prefer Darth Vader, okay, just truthfully. Um, but that's, that's kind of, kind of our, our world right now. Um, in fact, the other day, Eden was walking around our house with, with Darth Vader socks on her hands. Yes, we own Darth Vader socks, okay, don't judge me. Um, walking around, she walked right up to her Uncle, Uncle Bill and said with the scariest voice she could possibly muster, I am your father. It's an obsession. I don't, I don't know what's happened. And, and whether or not you, you like Star Wars, I, I realize it's not for everybody, okay? Patrick's never even seen the movies, uh, if you can believe that. Uh, it does happen, okay? Yeah, yeah. Um, but whether or not it's for you, that, that's irrelevant. The, the point is, I think for many of us, we're drawn to these kinds of stories of restoration. Like if you know the story, right? This, this idea of an oppressive power coming in and, and taking over and, and dominating and victimizing the people, right? And, and we long to see the, the good guys, the, the normal people, the underdogs, right? To overcome that power and the forces of evil, right? We, we long to see that. And, and for the last two weeks, that's been the story of Nehemiah, hasn't it? Regular Joes rebuilding the wall so that they can protect themselves from the the powers of the dark side, right? From the oppression that surrounds them. But just imagine now in the story, okay, let's go back to Star Wars. Imagine at that moment, right, the victory from the oppressive regime is is over and they have this this freedom and, and restoration. But what if the story continued, right? You know, right after the celebration with the Ewoks, you know, the big party. What if it continued and like Chewbacca goes out and opens a sweatshop, right? And Princess Leia, she raises taxes so high uh, that her people are beginning to starve. And Luke Skywalker is involved in human trafficking and Han Solo opens up his own payday loan. It'd kind of ruin it, wouldn't it, if that happened? I mean, the, the oppressed, right? Those who had been the object of such injustice now committing those same kinds of injustices on the people that they came to rescue. There's no wonder George Lucas didn't make that into a sequel, right? But that is exactly what's happening in Nehemiah's world. It's not just those outside the walls of Jerusalem that are causing this problem for these people. Even the insiders, even their own countrymen, are abusing power 
to take advantage of the weak. Now, power itself isn't the problem, right? Every one of us has power, all of us, young, old, it doesn't matter. God said in the garden that that we have been given dominion, right? That means power. And so every one of us, we have power in our, every one of our relationships, right, between spouses and siblings and roommates and friends and, and with our parents and children, all of that. We have, we have power in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our schools. We have power in the, the goals that we set, the things that we buy, the choices that we make. Every one of us has power. The question isn't whether or not you have power. The question is, what do we do with our power? And more specifically, what are the restored do with their power. Those Israelites who have been or are being restored, right, by the rebuilding of these walls that we've been talking about, or or those of us, right, who have been restored through Jesus Christ, what do the restored do? Well, if you remember even just one thing from this time together this morning, let it be this. Restored people restore others. Restored people use their power to restore others. Now, in our, you know, advanced 21st century culture, we we have a very specific moral ethic, don't we? Moral framework. Really just one, one rule in our culture. Don't hurt anyone, Right? I mean, that, that's the rule, right? And that's, that's the goal that we all try to live by. And as long as you're not hurting anyone, you're doing okay. And that's, that's a good rule, right? Don't hurt anybody. Now, if you're particularly ambitious, you might take it up a notch. Don't, not just don't hurt anyone, but also prevent others from hurting anyone. It's a good rule of thumb, right? And, and we see that in the story. Clearly, that's an important thing. But it's not good enough. Those who have been restored... Redeemed, those who have tasted grace, those who have been set free, who who realize that they once had nothing, but now in Jesus Christ have been given everything, the restored. Yeah, sure, don't don't hurt anyone. And yes, prevent others from hurting anyone. Absolutely. But we don't just withhold evil. We pour out good. Restored people restore others. And so as you think about this and think about our, our culture, what, where do you line up, sort of, what's your moral framework? Are you following that? I mean, it's, it's one thing to be the bully, okay? Don't be the bully, okay? We all know that. If you're the bully, right, and you don't have to be young to be a bully, okay? Stop, okay? Don't be the bully. And if you know a bully, you see somebody bullying, then prevent them from bullying. Do your best to stop them. But the hard question even harder than those first two, is how do we actively love the bully? And how do we love those kids that are the regular target of the bullies? I mean, do you see the, the difference here in, in what God calls us to? Restored people restore others. Well, how? How do they do it? How do we do it? I think Nehemiah gives us just a little bit of a clue along the way. And I think there's three things in particular that sort of jump out or or push us in this direction of restored people, restore others. Uh, First of all, that that restored people um, listen to their cries. And then we'll see restored people fear God above all. And then restored people overflow like no one else. 
And when these three things happen, the restored restore others. Okay, so we're in Nehemiah chapter 5. And if you recall, this is right around 445 BC, long time ago. And two weeks ago, okay, so this is our third week. So if this is your first time here with us, let me just kind of catch us up a little bit. So two weeks ago, uh, Nehemiah was living and working kind of in a cushy job. He was a slave, but he's a palace slave in the Persian Empire, in a place called Susa. And God had put it on his heart to bring restoration to the people of Israel, the, the, the Jews, God's people, by the rebuilding of the walls. They all sort of laid in, in ruins there in that city. And so he leaves his cushy job there. He travels the 1,100 miles and goes to Jerusalem and begins the work. And then last week, we saw that the work is hard. It's really hard. In fact, the people were regularly discouraged in their work because all of the oppression and violence and greed and racism from the people surrounding them wanted to prevent them from building the walls. But we saw that they, they worked, and they worked hard, and they worked together. And in just 52 days, God enabled them together to complete this task, to, to restore, to, to bring this sort of restoration, this, this, this freedom, all of that. And the official completion of the walls, that actually happens in chapter 6. But here we are in chapter 5. So the walls aren't aren't quite done yet, okay? They're getting near their completion. When all of a sudden in chapter 5, we realize that the oppression that they're experiencing isn't just from those bad guys out there, right? Sanballat and Tobiah. It's It's not just them, It's even coming from inside these walls. In fact, for some, the walls being built around Jerusalem was almost as if they were becoming a cage for the weak. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. So the people cried out, Will anyone listen? And then Nehemiah sort of lists out the the kind of cries that the people were crying out. He gives a few examples. He says, basically, some were were crying out that they were starving and no one would give them any grain to eat. They were just too hungry. Others weren't to that point, but they were crying out because they had to mortgage their fields and their vineyards just to get enough food. Still others were forced to, to borrow at a ridiculous interest rate just to pay the Persian tax on the people. And it all builds to verse 5. It says, As a result, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. So are you picturing what's happening here? Okay? So think about it. They've, They've been building this wall long hours every day for weeks, neglecting their farms, right? And you add to that then that there's this incredibly high Persian tax, right? They are ruled by an oppressive foreign regime, right? These Persians. So there's a high tax. And then you add to that that there's a famine in the land. There just simply is not enough food there. So we've got this perfect storm swirling for injustice for these people. But what makes this terrible situation and these terrible things absolutely appalling 
is that these are all happening inside the walls, among God's people. That, that even their own brothers are getting richer and fatter while others are suffering so deplorably. Of course the weak cry out. And restored people restore others. And, and here it begins. Restored people listen to their cries. I mean, Nehemiah, he came to build walls, didn't he? That's, that's, that was his objective, to build walls. But when he gets there, he realized that this Jerusalem, this people, they need a lot more rebuilding than just walls, don't they? And I'm so intrigued, even just overall, by the, the progression of this story. I mean, the whole story, all of Nehemiah. Because step one for Nehemiah is the restoration of the walls. Step two this week is the restoration of the week. And step three next week is the, the restoration of worship for the people. I just find it so interesting that before the worship can be restored, the weak must be restored. And yet we all know how easy it is to abuse power, don't we? I mean, if you don't believe me, just look at your kids, right? Uh, look, at, look at your, your roommate or your, your friend, you know, your, that particular coworker, and, and certainly look deep within or look at politics or economics Power is so easy to abuse. It's even easy for the so-called good guys to abuse power. And truthfully, I can be pretty good at it myself. And I'm fascinated here that in some of the, the ways in this story that the aristocracy is taking advantage of the lower classes was completely permissible by the law books. A lot of it. I mean, many scholars would say that there are only a a couple of of explicit laws being broken by the Israelites in this moment. And yet Nehemiah is outraged. I mean, there's a famine for crying out out loud, right? Uh, We're trying to build the walls, for goodness sake, and you're going to make a profit while your countrymen lose everything? You know, some of the, the greatest injustices in our day... Are, are absolutely legal, right? I mean, you just think about that. Payday loans, preying on the, on the poor, abortion, trampling the rights of, of the, the most vulnerable in our society, um, child labor laws in other countries. I mean, legal and right aren't always the same thing. And so are we listening to their cries? I mean, it's the only way we're going to find out. It's the only way we're going to know what's going on. Are we listening to the cries of those who are hurting, those who are oppressed or, or the subject of injustice? Are we listening for it? And that begins, right, by listening even in our closest relationships because power seduces every one of us here. We love it. And we so quickly manipulate or dominate or, or demand things from the people around us. I mean, just think about that even in the context of your own home between spouses and children and siblings or, or roommates or think about it in your workplace or, or school? Are we even listening to the cries of the people around us that without necessarily even knowing it, we continue to manipulate and make demands and place expectations on? Are we, are we listening? It's got to start there, but obviously it can't end there either. I mean, what about more broadly? Where do we, where do we hear the cries of others in our, in our neighborhoods? Across our city, in our world, are, are we listening? 
mean, did you know, for example, that the Kansas City, Missouri School District lost its accreditation a couple years ago? And the public schools in Kansas City, Missouri are unaccredited. Just imagine what that does to education and poverty and race in our city. Do we hear their cries? Just right down the street. Or or did you know that that the average payday loan charges 400% interest? You thought your credit card was high, right? There's no wonder that these establishments are are found on every corner in low-income areas, offering easy money to people who can never possibly repay it. Or did you know, this is a new one for me, and I kind of wish I didn't know this, because now I feel sort of right, obliged when we hear these things to, to think and act and pray or something, right? But I was told this week that, that 70% of the world's chocolate, which we all enjoy, is produced by companies that utilize child slavery in their workforce. 70%, right? 1.8 million children in Africa work in this industry all of them at great peril, many of them as slaves, so that we can get a cheap bag of M&Ms. Do we we hear their cries? Are are we listening for it? And I I realize that for for these and so many other things, there's no simple solution, right? There's no easy way to just sort of figure out. These are complicated problems. But are we even listening Ignorance is bliss, I know. But restored people listen to the cries of the weak. And really, if you think about it, if you understand the Gospels, Jesus doesn't give us any other option. I mean, Jesus makes it pretty clear that the good news is only good news if it's good for the weak. That's it. If it's only good for the rich and the powerful, for the people who have their lives together, then it's meaningless. Restored people use their power to restore others. And so Nehemiah, he, he listens to their cries. And look at his response in, in verse 6. He says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. And skip down a little bit. He says, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, right? By the rebuilding of the walls, by the reestablishment of them as a people. We have bought them back, but now you are even selling your brothers that they may be sold to us? And they were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. You see, injustice happens because we do not fear God. And that's really the idea over and over again in the Old Testament, that, that injustice and this lack of reverence for God, this fear of God, it doesn't exist. It doesn't happen. People who abuse power, right, they, they don't care about God's image, which is found in every human being, which is, you just stop and think about that for two seconds. It just doesn't just blow you away, right? Every single person. They don't care about God's name, right? And, and what injustice says to the world around us, how it tells people that God doesn't care for them. 
that they aren't worth it, worthwhile. All they care about is what they have to gain. And what's so ironic here in this, this point in history, right, uh, when, when Nehemiah is, is declaring that these terrible things happening, seeing this, is that the prophets tell us, right, written long before Nehemiah, particularly Amos and Isaiah, tell us that one of the main reasons they're in the mess they're in in the first place, one of the reasons that the, the walls of Jerusalem are sitting there in rubble and they're oppressed by their enemies is because of their injustice from centuries earlier. Because they did not fear God and God came to them in wrath. And Nehemiah knows that here they are once again. They don't fear God again. And if something doesn't change, God's not going to put up with it. And I know culturally, right, we kind of get a little bit squeamish talking about this idea of the fear of God, don't we? As if it's a bad thing. The reality is restored people fear God above all. And really, we only think we prefer a God who's warm and fuzzy, who doesn't judge evil. That's, that's kind of what we, we tend to, to gravitate towards. But think about it this way. What if you're one of those moms who's been starving to death, who just sold her daughter into slavery so that she and her can live another day? Are you sure you don't want a God who brings justice on the wicked? When we look at it from those perspectives, it's like, well, wait a second here. God is not looking to pounce on us. I mean, that's not the kind of fear that we're talking about. God is full of grace and love, but how could he be loving and not get angry at our sin and not get angry at our injustice? I mean, our Heavenly Father watches the people that he made, us, right? The the people that he loves systematically destroy ourselves, each other, and our world. I don't want a God who's okay with that. I want a God who, who gets impassioned by the things around us, who, who longs to do something about it, who's not just going to sit on his hand. And our God, the God that is talked about in this book, holds people accountable. Now, if that's true, we'd better fear him. And not only does a proper fear of God keep us from abusing power, it also determines our response to others when they abuse power. And think about that for a moment, because here, right, for example, Nehemiah, uh, in light of this injustice, Nehemiah is angry at the injustice. But I think it's because Nehemiah fears God, and he knows that God is angry at injustice. And so, of course, Nehemiah is angry. Are you angry at the injustice in your life and in your world? If not, do you fear God? And Nehemiah as well, he goes on and he ends up, right, confronting the most powerful people in Jerusalem. Just think about that. He's the new leader in town, right? And he is gathering all these people for this emergency project of rebuilding the walls. And now he's calling out the most powerful people in the city. He's not afraid of them. He fears God. He's not worried about his approval ratings. He's not worried about the opinions of those around him. Because he knows God is the one who holds us accountable, not these people. Are we willing to confront injustice? At work, the bully, at school, global issues? And if not, who do you fear really? Whatever you fear, that's your God. 
Nehemiah's fear of God, it also leads him and eventually the whole people to this incredible picture of repentance and restitution. But as the story continues, verse, verse 10, again, this is Nehemiah talking. He says, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain, but let us abandon this exacting of interest. And I love this here because Nehemiah kind of shares a little bit of their culpability. He knows that as a member of the community that he shares their guilt. The reality is whether, whether or not you and I are, are guilty, you know, right up front committing the injustice, whether that's us or not, we share the guilt of our people. As a society, we're, we're, we come to these things so individualistic, we don't see the, the way that we are even culpable and complicit in the things that people do wrong around us. And so Nehemiah, he demands that they give back everything they've exacted from the weak. And in many ways, Nehemiah declares an emergency year of jubilee. For some of you might, might have heard that phrase before. That's an Old Testament law that every 49 years... All of the Israelites were required to forgive all debts, free all slaves, and give back any property that they'd acquired back to the original owners. Every 49 years. And Nehemiah here, essentially he's saying, okay, right now it may not be the 49-year mark or whatever, but we need one. Desperate times call for desperate measures. We need an emergency year of jubilee. And the people agree. Just like that. And now Nehemiah is a little bit skeptical, right? They all said, yeah, we're in. You know, and he's like, okay, are you really in? Uh, and so he calls out all the priests and he makes the people swear an oath before them that they will do what they have said. Verse 13, it says, and all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. All this happens because restored people fear God above all. And when the people fear God, restored people restore others. But remember now, our highest ethic isn't merely do no harm. It's a good rule. Don't do any harm. It's not enough. And our highest ethic isn't simply prevent others from doing harm, as important as that is. If you've encountered this God, the God who restores, how do we use our power? Well, restored people overflow like no one else. And this is what sets us apart. More than anything else, and this is, this is what sets Nehemiah apart here as a leader. In, in verse 14, it's all part of the same story, uh, but in many ways, it's, it's Nehemiah reflecting back on the 12 years as governor. So if you think about verse 14, is like 12 years ahead. Nehemiah is sitting in his office, and he's reflecting on these things. He's reflecting on his 12 years. So this is past the walls, past the rest, restoring of the week, past the restoration of their worship. And he basically there, reflecting in his office, is, is saying, you know, in all that time, those 12 years as governor, not only did I not abuse my power, but I didn't even take what was rightfully mine. Verse 15. He says, the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. 
But I did not do so. Why? Because of the fear of God. He refused his rights and he did the opposite of everyone else. It says in verse 17 that he actually took it upon himself to pay for the food of the entire government there in Jerusalem, the local government, to spare the burden on the people, to lift some of their pain and struggle. It says in verse 17, Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. And you had to throw a party. It says, yet for all of this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. And there are lots of things that you and I have the legal right to do. But we refuse. Simply for the good of others. Bear the expense ourselves. I mean, imagine this kind of selfless generosity, this kind of use of power, even by someone who became one of the most powerful men there in that city. Not because he had to, simply because he knew what it was like to be restored and he couldn't help but overflow to others, even at great personal expense to himself. And it is unlike anything else when it happens. Restored people overflow. So what, what pours out of you? And as you? As you look at your life, is it more like a dried up stream? Just not much there. Or are you more like a, a reservoir? There's a whole lot there, but nothing flowing. Restored people are waterfalls, bursting flowing, gushing. Just, just can't even hardly help it, right? We, we burst forth with, with kind words and attitudes and we flow out with, with actions and service and, and tangible ways of, of helping others. We, we gush forth with our resources of time and money and all of these things. Not because we have to. Because that's just what restored people do. And if you're not overflowing, I mean, you've got to ask yourself, have I been restored? Have I experienced the same thing that these people have experienced? Because Nehemiah is not the star of this story. I mean, he sounds pretty great, but he's not the star. He simply overflows what's been poured into him by our great God. I mean, you're following kind of that metaphor? It's just, God is, is a God who just gushes forth, right? And, and pours out blessing after goodness and, and love and mercy and forgiveness and all these things. And Nehemiah, he's experienced it and it just keeps flowing out over him. He can't contain it all. And so it goes on into every aspect of his life and world, influencing those around him. It's, it's not Nehemiah who does the restoration. God is the one restoring the weak. But God delights to use us And I'm not sure it's possible to be restored by Jesus and not have a growing desire to see the restoration of others spiritually, emotionally, physically. Because, you know, Jesus himself, in many ways, 
declares to be kind of this fulfillment of the year of Jubilee that we were talking about, right? This release of debts and forgiveness. I love that. And one of the first things Jesus does in the Gospel of Luke, uh, he, he gets up and he reads from the book of Isaiah. And he says, these words are about me. Here, here's what he, what he reads. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's part of his job description. And now he uses us, the restored, to restore others. I mean, Jesus, the most powerful, right? He used his power. He pours it out and suffers and dies to restore us. But the reality is, until we see ourselves as the ones in need of restoration, we'll never do any of this, honestly. At least not like we should, because we're the powerful, aren't we? Let's be honest, we're the the rich and and educated. We are the powerful. We have been so stinking privileged that just by default in our sin, we tend to side with the powerful. That's that's our team, right? And yet this this book makes it clear that we're the ones who need to be restored. We are the ones who owe a debt that we couldn't possibly repay. We are the ones who have mortgaged everything, our, even, even our souls, just to get what we think we want. We are the ones who are enslaved to things like greed and lust and power and all of these things that should grab on anger and selfishness and pride. We are the weak. And we have way more in common with the downtrodden than we ever care to admit. But we've been restored. Our debt has been paid. The mortgage has been fulfilled. The chains of our slavery have been broken. This is what Jesus has done. We had nothing, but now we've been given everything. You are restored. How can we not weep and pray and work and serve and give for the sake of others? For his restoration of the lives of so many. I love how Nehemiah ends this chapter. He kind of switches into a prayer. So he's talking about the things that he's done, and then he prays just really quickly. He says, remember for my good, oh my God, all that I've done for this people. It's like, God, just just keep in mind all these things. Remember this for me. You know, we know that's not enough, right? I mean, even our very best isn't possibly enough, and we will continue to fail. But thank God Jesus came to release both the oppressed and the oppressors. That even in our failure, even our continued abuse of power, we can be forgiven. It's not, look at my good, God, and what I've done. Just look at Jesus. Look at the good that he has done and give me credit for that through your cross. And we experience that life and restoration that we've been called to.